0: Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the world of sports sponsorship through exploring the history of corporations' involvement with sports teams and the current day practice of stadium naming rights and jersey sponsorships. So if you ever wondered what a 1970 law in the 1984 Olympic Games had to do with the rise of sports sponsorships, or why corporations are willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to put their name on a stadium, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to get back into talking about sport marketing. Now, remember, in a past episode, we defined sport marketing as, quote, the specific application of marketing principles and processes to sport products and to the marketing of non-sport products through association with sport. And we try to simplify this definition by saying sport marketing really has two major thrusts. The first thrust deals with marketing the sports product itself. That deals with trying to gain awareness or create awareness around our product, which is the sport game or the event oftentimes, so that people not only come and buy that product or attend the game or event, but also continue to come back in the future. But today I want to focus on the second thrust, and that's the use of sport to market both sports-related products and non-sport-related products. And this is something that we can simplify by saying this is sponsorship. Now, sponsorship's a term you've probably heard before. But let's break down the definition to make sure that we're all on the same page before we go forward and talk about specific types of sponsorships that we see within sports. So sponsorship is defined by academics as, quote, the acquisition of rights to affiliate or directly associate with a product or event for the purpose of deriving benefits related to that affiliation or association. Now, that's a great definition to write in a paper, but let's break it down a bit to try to simplify it. The beginning part of that definition says that it's the acquisition of rights to affiliate or directly associate with a product. What are we saying here? Well, we're referring to the association or the coming together of two different companies. In sport, let's take this as a professional sports team and another product that's completely outside of sport, like a bank. A sponsorship deal deals with the bank and the professional sports team reaching an agreement so that the bank can use the professional sports team's team name, their logo, maybe a a phrase, anything that they've trademarked. That bank gets the right to use it so that the second part of the definition can gain benefits of being related to that professional sports team. Hopefully that is that they get a piece of that fan base. They raise awareness. They have an increase in their potential draw to the consumer. Now, sponsorship is something that we see in sports a ton, but there's a plethora of other mediums outside of sports that use sponsorship as well, such as entertainment or events or causes. And in fact, sport sponsorship is a relatively new phenomenon that didn't really explode onto the scene in full force until the 1980s and the 1990s. But before we get into that, I want to go back and I want to just look at the history and evolution. Of sports sponsorship and the easiest way to do this is to look at the growth in the amount of money that sports sponsorship was generating in America over the years so let's go back into the 1970s and actually let's go back a little bit before that in the 1960s and really post World War II in general we saw a ton of advertising money through the forms of commercials and billboards being spent by big tobacco companies and it got to the point where there was so much money being infused into tv commercials specifically by these big tobacco companies that it became worrisome for parents and our government it became worrisome because there was a belief that these advertisements and even a short tv show that joe camel had was targeting children And we were worried about the corruption of our youth. And so in the year 1970, President Richard Nixon signed into law something that said that tobacco companies could not advertise on TV. Well, that led to a problem for these tobacco companies because that was their major form of advertisement at the time. So they have all this money now that they need to do something with to try to continue to increase their brand awareness. So one tobacco company called Winston decided to try something a little bit different, and they decided to go and sign a sponsorship deal with a sport entity that they thought would bring some positive affiliation to their product, and that was NASCAR. And so from 1971 all the way to 2003, NASCAR's premium series was called the Winston Cup Series. And it was sponsored by R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, which is a cigarette brand for Winston cigarettes. So this is the first major money that we see really infused into sport through a form of sponsorship. And it was extremely successful, specifically because the NASCAR population was exactly who Winston was trying to target with their marketing in the first place. And so because Big Tobacco now had all this money that they weren't spending on advertisements, they needed to shift it somewhere else, and they found success with shifting it into NASCAR in the form of a sponsorship deal, which gave them the title sponsor for the premium race series that NASCAR sponsored. And so in 1980, as we start to see some more money get infused into sports based on the success of this Winston Cup series we see $300 million spent that year on sponsorships in sport. And that's a pretty big number. But there was another event that occurred in 1984 that had just as big of an impact as that initial tobacco ban and advertisement had in 1970. And that was the LA Summer Olympics. You see, before 1984... The Olympics allowed corporate sponsors, but in a large part, they were seen as failures and seen as a waste of money. And in fact, the 1976 Olympics, which was held in Montreal, Canada, they had corporate sponsors. However, they weren't able to generate that much money from the sponsorship deals. And in fact, they went so over budget that they were stuck paying off the debt from that Olympics all the way until the year 2006. And so as a result of this, as a result of seeing them go over budget, and as a result of being fearful that their city might do the same, and in part because of past violence at the 1968 Olympics and the 1972 Olympic Games, there was only one city that actually bid for the 1984 Olympics, and that was L.A., but the taxpayers in LA and California in general were not really happy about this because they were worried that they would be stuck with the bill through increased tax rates in the same way that the Montreal citizens were stuck with the bill in 1976. However, the LA Olympics, which were led by an individual named Umberoth, they came up with a new and innovative approach to selling sponsorships. And this really started to change how sports used these major corporations to generate revenue. So you see, in the 1976 Montreal Olympics, they had 628 official sponsors. That is a massive number of official sponsors. And the reason that's bad is because it leads to confusion among the consumer base. Because if there's so many sponsors, and I'm seeing so many advertisements, I start to not pay attention to any of them, or I start to get them confused. Imagine if I continuously see both McDonald's and Burger King showing advertisements or calling themselves the official sponsor of Olympic Games, start to confuse the two products, which means there's no value in being an official sponsor because you're not gaining anything from that association. So the use of all these official sponsors... In Montreal, meant that the Olympic brand that these sponsors were associating with had very little impact on the companies. But Umberoth was smart, and he decided to change this by selling sponsorships to only a handful of official sponsors. And he wanted to target large companies that were willing to pay lucrative amounts to be the only official sponsor. And he did this by sorting the different sponsorship companies into categories. So he looked at a fast food, and he gave that a category, and he said, we are only going to have one fast food company who has exclusive rights to being our sponsor. And by doing that, that fast food company now has an increased value that they're getting from associating with the Olympics. But at the time, people weren't even sure that this idea would be successful. In fact, in 1984, the Chicago Tribune posted an article that questioned his tactic, and they said, quote, What motivates them to spend marketing dollars underwriting the Olympics? A short-lived one-time event rather than channeling them into traditional avenues. Is it simply the right to call themselves the official sponsor of the Olympics? Does it boast employee morale or does it satisfy the ego of corporate executives? Does sponsoring the Olympics actually sell more hamburgers, more airplane seats, or more candy? You see, Chicago Tribune was saying that associating with the Olympics was really not worth the money because the event is very short. It's over just a couple week time span. It happens once and then it goes away. And so they said, why are they doing this? They're not improving employee morale. They're not selling more tickets. All they're doing is playing to the ego of the CEOs and of the individuals that are in the higher up. But an article in the old grantland.com website pointed out that this wasn't the right approach or the right questions to be asking. And they said, quote, this really wasn't what was at stake in referring to the questions that the Chicago Tribune asked. The reason the LA Games would become a model for future Olympics was on before Shrewd's grasp of how marketing was evolving. The businesses that bought in realized that what they were buying was intangible and that the new normal would be as much about brand recognition as units sold. Whereas sponsorship opportunities had previously been cheap and open to all, the planning committee created a system of exclusivity. McDonald's and Burger King couldn't both call themselves the quote, golden circle of Olympic supporters. They bid to see who would become the official burger of the Games. McDonald's won, thus earning the right to finance and name the McDonald's Olympic swim stadium, end quote. And what happens when the Olympics does this, when they put these massive corporations against each other to bid for the right to be the official sponsors and only making it so a certain number of companies could do that. All of a sudden, there was an increased value in what these companies were getting. They could say that they were the only official sponsor of the Olympics. And by tying in and using something like the Olympics that was so well known and seen all over the world, that company is able to get something that's intangible. They don't necessarily get to sell burgers directly as a result of it, but they get more people to know about their brand. They get more people to know about their product. And they realized, the people that were putting on these Olympic Games, that just the increased recognition from the consumer base oftentimes led to long-term sales. Because when we buy something, we generally buy what we know. We're afraid to buy new things. Most of us are followers. We are not the early adapters to a product. We wait until we see everyone else doing it. And by having the Olympics attach their name and show that they supported these brands, that was us following suit and saying, well, if the Olympics supports it, we'll follow through and we'll support it as well. And so all of a sudden there became this increased value through sport sponsorship. And we see that financially because in 1987, the amount of money that was spent on sports sponsorships went up to $1.75 billion that year. And remember just previously in the year 1980, we saw only $300 million spent on sports sponsorships. So we start to see this massive increase in spending. And there's some other things that are happening around this time as well. People are starting to realize that there's just too much noise in other forms of media through which they advertise. There's all this advertisements at the time that we're seeing in print media, particularly newspapers and magazines and electronic media like the radio or television. And what happens is when we see advertisements all the time, we as the consumer start to tune them out. The average person right now, depending on the study you read, sees between 5,000 and 10,000 advertisements a day. And I always ask students when I teach this in class or when I give lectures in front of people, I say, think about how many advertisements you remember seeing to this point today. And most of them probably walked into a classroom or walked into the building and passed advertisements left and right, and they can't even remember what they saw. Well, why is that? Well, think about how you are when you watch tv if you still have cable or you still watch network tv what happens when the commercials come on do you sit there and watch them and pay attention to them no most of us go down to our phone or we flip the channel so since we don't pay attention there's no effect from that money being spent the people that are trying to get your attention those companies it's not that effective so they need to look for new ways to break through that white noise How do they do that? Well, sports is a great way to break through. And so more companies saw the success of the Winston Cup series. They saw the success of the sponsorship programs through the Olympics. And they said, hey, this might be a way we can break through some of that typical white noise that's out there in advertisements through associating ourselves with a sporting team or event and hoping that that raises awareness that way. Finally, we also at this time start to see this increased media interest in sport programming. In the 1980s, we start to see the increase of sports-specific television networks like ESPN. We start to see individuals have more leisure time. And what are they doing with this leisure time? They're consuming more and more sports. They're not only watching more sports on television or listening to more sports on the radio, they're also going to more sporting events. And the more sporting events they're going to, the more they're seeing the stadium the more they're seeing the surroundings of the stadium. And as we start to see the surroundings more, the more valuable that space within the stadium becomes for individuals that are trying to sell their product through using sport. So our increased interest in sport programming and the increase in the amount of sports-specific television networks all of a sudden showed corporations that there was this great avenue to break through some of that white noise because people were so interested in sport. So we see more and more money being spent. As I said, in 1987, we saw $1.75 billion spent on sports sponsorship. You go 10 years later to 1998 and you see that number go up a thousand percent to 17.35 billion dollars. 10 years after that, we go all the way up to 27.5 billion dollars in 2008. The latest numbers that we have from 2018 show that in the United States alone in 2018, 24.2 billion dollars were spent on sport specific sponsorship. That's up 4.5% from the year before. And what's even more interesting is when we look at the global numbers. In 2018, there was $65.8 billion spent, which is up about 5% from the year before. Of that $65.8 billion, 89% of it was spent on sponsorship through sport, which comes out to 58.65% billion dollars so because of all these things we've seen historically the success of tobacco industry getting into sports sponsorship through nascar the success of the 1984 olympics through providing exclusivity to organizations to increase the value they got through sponsorship programs because of the increased amount of advertisements people see on a given day and the need to break through that white noise And the use of sport to do that. We have seen sponsorship across the world explode within the world of sports. So now that we've looked at the history and the growth of sports sponsorship by attacking the amount of money that's been spent over the years on sports sponsorship deals. I think it's important to stop here and look at what both sides of this agreement are looking to get out of their association with one another. Remember, the two entities that we're dealing with here are the sporting organization and then the corporate entity that's doing the sponsorship. From the sport organization standpoint, it's pretty obvious what they want out of a sponsorship agreement. They want money. Remember, sport entities can generate revenue in a lot of different ways, and they do. They sell tickets. They sell merchandise and food. They sell parking at their events. They'll use their stadium in creative ways. They'll host concerts and they can get a piece of that. Probably the biggest way they generate revenue is through television contracts and network deals. But as a sport entity, I'm always looking for new ways to generate more revenue to improve my chances of winning a championship. I'm also trying to make more money for my owner. And one of the ways I can do that is through these sponsorship agreements. And so we see majority of professional sports teams sell a number of sponsorship opportunities to help increase the amount of revenue they have to pay their costs, but also generate more money for their owners. On the other side though, for those corporate entities that are entering into the sponsorship agreement with the sport entities or with the sporting organizations, it's not as clear cut and there's a lot more that they're looking to get out of the association. Now, a great thing is is there there's a company out there called IEG that does an annual study that looks at a plethora of things within sponsorship. But one of the things they do, which is really interesting, is they go out and they actually survey companies that are in these sports sponsorship agreements. And they ask them, what do they want out of the agreement? What do they value the most? And the number one thing that these companies said last year was that they're looking to create awareness of their brand and of their products amongst consumers. Think of it this way. A corporate sponsor will receive advertising just by being associated with that team. So if I'm Staples, for example, and my name is on the top of the Staples arena, where the Los Angeles Lakers, Los Angeles Clippers, the Los Angeles Sparks, and the Los Angeles Kings all play... I'm getting a massive amount of advertisement every time one of those four teams is on TV. Because if you've ever watched a Lakers game, you'll know they always show an overview shot of the city focused on the Staples Center. And what's on top of the Staples Center? In big white print with a red background, it's the word staples. So that's a form of advertisement that they are receiving. They're also getting advertisement in print media that helps create awareness. If you're talking about where is this game being played and it says Staples Center, bam, I'm raising my awareness just by being associated with that team. So that's the number one thing that they want. They want people to know about their product. And they think that incorporating with that sport entity, that sport organization, that sports team, or maybe that sporting event will help them get that. But that's not the only thing that they're looking for. The second thing that IEG found that they're looking for is an increase in brand loyalty. Brand loyalty is the idea that we will only go out and buy a very specific brand of a product. Brand loyalty within sport is extremely high. Think about it. Your favorite sport team has probably remained the same for most of your life. I have been a Celtics, Red Sox, and Patriots fan my whole life. They have always and will always be my three favorite sporting teams. I have an extremely high level of brand loyalty to those teams. If a baseball game is on and I can choose to watch the Red Sox or watch someone else, I'm going to choose to watch the Red Sox. And in fact, I might not even watch any other baseball unless the Red Sox are playing in it. That is very high loyalty. On the other hand, we don't generally have extremely high brand loyalty to products. And so what these companies are saying is that they're hoping that by associating with sports, a product that people are extremely loyal to, that companies can get a piece of that loyalty, that individuals who are fans of the Red Sox might see that this corporation is associated with it, and so they become loyal to the corporation as well. So corporate sponsors want to achieve that emotional connection with the target audience. The emotional connection comes from partnering their brand with an audience that loves a sports team. And if a corporate sponsor partners with that audience of a beloved team, that puts the sponsor's brand in a positive light for the fans. And it could lead to those fans now going and buying their product and becoming loyal to their product. The third thing that these corporations have said that they're trying to get out of these sponsorship agreements with sports teams is a chance to reinforce their image or maybe change their image if they're being viewed in a negative light. Oftentimes, through that association that we've been talking about with that sport entity, you're able to reinforce a positive view of what you are. You're able also to associate maybe if you do it with the right team or organization with a victorious team. And that idea is that corporate sponsors want to be associated with winning. They want the benefits that can be attained by partnering with a sport facility or a sports team that has a winning culture. So when a team wins a Super Bowl and is seen as the best in football, if I'm a sponsor of that team, now I'm going to be associated and that image of being the best is going to be reinforced with my audience. The fourth thing that they talked about is they want the opportunity to entertain their clients. And that comes oftentimes from these sponsorship deals because they might receive a luxury suite as a part of the agreement. So as part of a stadium, naming rights deal, for example, a corporate sponsor usually will receive at least one of the facility's luxury seats. Oftentimes they might be able to get multiple suites or they might be able to get one for free and then they can purchase another one or two. These luxury suites allow the corporate sponsor to entertain climates, host future potential business partners, or potentially reward their employees by treating them to a game or treating them to an event. These corporations also talked about wanting to use these sponsorship deals to generate sales and increase the amount that their company can earn. Again, through some of these things that we've already talked about, but also through market capitalization, which is this idea that corporate sponsors can potentially see their stock value increase when they reach an agreement with a stadium or naming rights deal. So it can stimulate not only sales or the usage of their product or service, but it can also lead to a better view of them within the financial industry that can increase their stock value, which increases their revenue production. Rounding out the other things that they've talked about looking for. They're looking in these deals to obtain or develop maybe content that they can use in social media or other forms of media. So maybe they can obtain pictures or images that they can then go and put up on their corporate Facebook or Instagram page or their Twitter profile. They're looking to showcase that they support the community oftentimes. And when we talk about sponsorship within sport, oftentimes we think of it as professional or intercollegiate. But sponsorship is really breaking into things like high school athletics as well. And a lot of big companies are starting to sponsor high school athletic teams to show support for that community base. And the idea is that if a company is showing that they support the community, the individuals in that community will want to reciprocate that by going and buying the product or buying the services that that sponsor has to offer. Some of the companies talked about wanting to capture a specific database that the team might have. Team sport entities, have databases of consumers. They have individuals and lists and profiles of who's consuming their product. Think about it. Every time you buy season tickets or a ticket, I'm giving them personal information about me. Well, the corporation that's doing a sponsorship deal oftentimes will get access to that information or that database that that team has. So then they can now do very specific target advertisements to me. So if I were to go on and buy tickets to see the Tennessee Titans play, the Titans now have my email address. They know I'm interested in their product. And now all those corporations that are sponsoring with the Titans have my email address as well. And they can send me very targeted advertisements using maybe the Titans logo to try to spur me to buy their product. Some of the organizations that enter into these agreements also talked about winning the chance to sell their product at the event or at the game and they talked about wanting to be able to access a platform for experiential branding experiential branding is just this idea of not just putting my brand or my logo up on a stadium but actually having individuals engage in activities around my brand to hopefully increase the awareness of the brand and their attachment to it so it's putting on it's it's having an activity outside the stadium that involves individuals doing something. Maybe I have a contest to see who can throw a baseball the fastest. That'd be in a form of experiential branding, where I put my brand on that activity. People are doing something, and the idea is that through doing something, you actually create an attachment to the activity and to the person that's putting it on. So in order to make these benefits available to the corporations, sport entities can sell sponsorships to really almost anything. So for example, in 2006, the Chicago White Sox had a sponsorship deal with 7-Eleven convenience store that involved the Chicago White Sox starting all their home games at 7:11 p.m. instead of the traditional 7:05. And the sponsorship deal was a three-year deal that was worth on average of half a million dollars a year. And 7-Eleven got a lot of the benefits that we just talked about out of the deal. They got increased awareness about their product, in this case about their store, through that start time. Because when people hear 7-Eleven, there's an almost automatic association with the convenience store minor league teams in baseball will take this even further oftentimes selling sponsorships for everything home runs walks hits strikeouts they also sell scoreboard sponsorships and they put sponsorships all over their outfield walls and their foul poles in football we see them putting sponsorship signage everywhere as well we see in college football the All-State field goals with the All-State Good Hands logo on the net that's behind the field goal to catch the ball. We'll see them putting signage on the 20-yard lines. Why the 20? Because research has shown that that is the yard line that is most seen over the course of an entire football game on TV. But the most profitable form of sponsorship for sports teams are naming right deals, and more specifically, stadium naming right deals. Now, naming right deals are the most expensive sport marketing investment in the current marketplace, as Alan Friedman says, but they are the best dollar for impression sponsorship bargain and one of the most underutilized promotional assets in a company's arsenal. So just as we do with sponsorships, let's just take a brief aside to look at the history of stadium naming rights. An article by Greenberg and Gavin noted that stadium naming rights in the United States go as far back as 1912 when the Boston Red Sox named their stadium Fenway Park after the city's Boston Fenway section, which was named for a real estate company that Fenway owned. If we fast forward 24 years to 1926, the Chicago Cubs, owned by William Wrigley Jr., who was the chewing gum industrialist, renamed their ballpark, where the Cubs were playing, Wrigley Field, both after himself and after his chewing gum enterprise. Now, these forms of naming right deals weren't done to generate money for the team by selling the rights to the stadium, but they were a tie-in between both a company and a sport enterprise. If we fast forward into the 1980s and 90s, this is when we start to see corporate stadium naming right deals really take off in America. And stadium owners realize that they can make a huge profit through selling the rights to name their stadium. And according to Chen and Zhang, two well-respected sport management scholars, quote, the long-term nature of a sports facility's naming rights deal makes it easier for all parties involved to build stronger business connections with each other, leading this kind of marketing avenue to be more effective than short-term event sponsorships. The length of the stadium naming rights contracts, however, also reduces the availability of these unique marketing opportunities that were relatively few from the start. By 2012, 84 of the 121 teams in the four major professional sport leagues had reached venue sponsorship agreements with corporations. Since naming right opportunities are limited and the costs are so high in major league sports, a natural trend of growth would involve expanding beyond major league facilities into middle-tier markets such as minor league sports and intercollegiate sports. End quote. So what they're pointing out here is, Is that these stadium naming right deals are so lucrative because there's such a limited quantity of them. And plus, the fact that they are long term deals allows that incorporation between the sponsor and the sport entity to really grow in association. It allows that corporation to become intermingled with the sport entity thus increasing the amount of awareness that's generating and allowing for those benefits that we already talked about to be realized in a far greater way by the corporation. Now, an update of what Chen and Zhang pointed out, they said in 2012, 84 of the 120 teams in the four professional sports leagues had reached venue agreements. In 2018, that number's grown even more to where there are now 114 deals that are in place and if we look at these deals, some of them are absolutely massive. I went and I pulled the top five sports sponsorship deals in North America. Number one, which just went into effect is the Toronto Raptors, who have a $639 million agreement over an 11-year time span with Scotiabank for the naming rights to their arena. The second biggest one is the arena where the Giants and the Jets play MetLife Stadium. That deal, depending on the sources, is anywhere between $425 million to $625 million, and it's paid out over a 26-year time span. The third one is a stadium that's just being finished for the Golden State Warriors that's going to be named Chase Center after Chase Bank, and that's a 300 to 400 million dollar contract which extends over 24 years. Next is City Field, which is the Mets Stadium, and that's a 400 million dollar deal that really started this massive amount of money that is being spent. That deal fell under particular scrutiny because it started in the year 2006. And if you recall, around that time, what was going on within our society was we were getting into that massive recession where the banks actually had to be bailed out. And Citibank was one of those banks that needed a lot of government funding to help them. And even though they were doing that, they still kept the deal that they had with the Mets because they realized what we've already said that through a stadium sponsorship deal, they'd be able to generate so much more awareness about their bank that it would actually end up paying for itself. And last, the fifth stadium on our list for the top five is Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is in Atlanta where the Falcons and Atlanta United of the MLS play. That's a $324 million deal that runs until the year 2043. And just think about it, Mercedes-Benz stadiums just was where the Super Bowl was played this past year. Think about how much press and how many impressions, how often you saw the Mercedes-Benz logo on your screen during the Super Bowl. So these massive deals illustrate what Chen and Zhang were talking about. There's such limited stadiums out there within professional sports that these teams are able to sell the rights to put corporations names on those stadiums for massive amounts of money but you have to be careful with some of these naming right deals because sometimes it might actually hurt the team if all of a sudden the corporation that has their name on the stadium is viewed in a negative light that can have a negative implications or negative repercussions for the sporting entity Nowhere was this more prevalent than with the Livestrong Stadium, which is where Sporting Kansas City plays their soccer games. They had a really unique opportunity before Livestrong got put in a negative light to have a deal and associate themselves with this charitable organization. And in fact, it was so unique that Sporting Kansas City actually paid Livestrong for the right to put Livestrong on their own stadium. It was almost a reverse sponsorship. But all of a sudden when Lance Armstrong sat down with Oprah and confessed to cheating and then some investigations were done into the Livestrong organization they found that there was a lot of fraud that was occurring, all of a sudden that deal that Sporting Kansas City had with Livestrong turned negative because Sporting Kansas City was now tied in with this negative association. Another classic example was the college FAU. Which is the home of the Owls. And they sold this naming rights, to their stadium, which is a 29,000 seat stadium, to a private prison corporation called GEO Group. And GEO Group agreed to pay $6 million a year to have the stadium named after them. But there was such a backlash in the press and in the media that this college was getting money from a prison that the deal fell apart and FAU ended up backing out. So we have to be very careful with these stadium naming right deals. Even though they can be extremely lucrative, they can cause some potential downfall if all of a sudden the corporation is viewed in a negative light. But for the corporation, for the most part, these stadium naming right deals are pretty lucrative because they provide an avenue for the companies to get almost everything that we've already talked about them wanting out of a sponsorship deal. And most importantly, according to an individual named Ira Kalib, they gain a ton of what we call brand impressions. And as he says, quote, marketers know that putting a name on a venue can make billions of positive brand impressions in the minds of potential buyers. Why billions? Visitors to important venues are just one of the audiences that see the name as we talked about. Others include passerbyers, TV and internet viewers that watch the event live or in replays, news audiences on TV and in social media, and those watching videos posted on YouTube or people that share photos in person and online. That's why the owners of stadiums and other famous structures are more than happy to sell the naming rights as a way to generate significant additional value. The brand impression rule says that in spite of negative cases, putting your name on a building is usually a great idea for brand since it would be difficult to make billions of brand impressions over a similar time period using other forms of media. As long as the corporation or the division for which it is named has a good image and the venue does not have any serious negative association, it is likely to be a good deal for both sides. But stadium naming right deals aren't the only form of sports sponsorship that generates such large amounts of money for the corporations and for the teams themselves. In fact, in Europe, an old practice of selling jersey sponsorships can generate just as much money. And it's something that the NBA has now taken on full force. Because after the 2016-2017 season, the NBA announced the start of selling jersey sponsorships with a patch on players' uniforms. The patch itself can only be relatively small, 2.5 inches by 2.5 inches, and it's tucked away on the upper left side of the players' uniforms. But teams are taking advantage of that, and in fact, to date, it's been reported that $137 million has been generated through 29 teams selling that sponsorship. The average patch deal that teams have is around $6.5 million, and each of them has to be in at least a two-year agreement. But some teams have been able to generate quite a bit more than that $6.5 million. For example, the Golden State Warriors agreed to sell the space on their jersey with a three-year agreement to a Japanese technology company for a reported worth of $20 million annually. It is the most lucrative of the deals, and it nearly doubles the next highest, which is the Cleveland Cavaliers and Goodyear Tire. But it shows the potential that these teams can have going forward. And the companies that are buying these spots on the jerseys are doing so for the exact same reasons that they're sponsoring stadiums and arenas. There is a great value that they think they can get through associating with these professional basketball teams. And it's been reported by a media valuation company called Gum Gum Sports that, This form of advertising will generate over $350 million in value for these sponsors on social media alone. How do you get that number? Think about it. Every time that you see a picture of the Golden State Warriors up on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, wearing their jerseys, that Japanese technology company is getting an advertisement. Their logo is in that picture. And we can classify how many impressions or how many views that ad has, and we can put a dollar amount on it. So $350 million in value for $20 million spent is quite a return on investment. And as more and more teams get more familiar with how to generate money from this, we're going to see... Those valuations go sky high. And if we look at European soccer, which has been putting names on their jerseys for years, we can just see what the potential of some of those deals might be. Just looking at the top five in Europe, the number one jersey sponsorship deal is Real Madrid, and they're sponsored by United Arab Emirates. It is an $80 million a year deal that will end in 2021. And what's even more interesting is that Real Madrid just entered a 10-year deal with Adidas to use only Adidas gear. And that deal is worth $1.26 billion. Second in Europe, as far as these Jersey sponsorship deals is Manchester United with Chevy. There's a $68 million a year deal. Then there's Barcelona with the same company that the Golden State Warriors have, so it's a great comparison point. But Barcelona is getting not $20 million a year, not $30 million a year. They're getting $60 million a year. Then Arsenal is also with Emirates, just like Real Madrid. They're getting $56 million a year. Chelsea is with another company, and they're getting $51 million a year. So think of the potential for these NBA teams. And the question that you might be asking is, when will we see other American professional sports break in and do this? We already see it in the MLS, but those deals generally range from around 2 to $5 million a year. We see it in the WNBA where they have jersey sponsors. But when will we see it in sports like baseball or football? In football, we see it on practice jerseys in the spring but they haven't broken through to those other marketplaces. While some people might argue that baseball is more of a traditional sport and they'll never do it, and that football doesn't want to do it as well, eventually I think they're going to see that they have something that these sponsoring corporations want, and once they start to get offered tens and twenty million dollars for that, I think they're eventually going to fold. There might be some holdouts, just as there aren't any league, but since these teams are trying to generate more and more revenue through these sponsorship deals, it's only a matter of time before these leagues follow suit with European soccer and the NBA. So hopefully through our conversation today, you now understand more about sponsorship within the world of sports. Not only do you understand the history and why we see so many corporations choosing to spend that advertising money on sponsorship campaigns with sport entities, but you also understand what that corporation is looking to get out of the deal. Hopefully you've also learned a little bit about some of the best forms of sponsorship in the form of stadium naming rights deals and these jersey sponsorship deals that we just discussed. If you have any other questions about sponsorships, since we just touched the tip of the iceberg, please feel free to reach out and follow us on Instagram at TheSportProfessor. We post weekly about our podcast topics, giving a little bit more background and providing some interesting insight and photographs. Please also follow us on iTunes and Spotify, so that way you can get alerts when we post our newest episodes. Until next week, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of... The Sport Professor Podcast.